Hi, and welcome to Be Your Best Podcast. I'm Gilman Hansen, your host. I'm a brand strategist and executive creative director for companies and organizations around the world for over 25 years, helping them discover, create, and design brands. A year ago, I took all that I learned about branding and applied it to people like you and me and created Design Personal Brand Training for individuals and teams, where people can learn about designing a strong personal brand and how to apply it in making a difference for themselves and others. Recently, we started Be Your Best Podcast to chat with others who have created successes with their personal brand for both work and play. So let's get started by considering, what does it mean to be our best personal brand? And how can we learn to be our best? How are we perceived? Can we manage what others think of us? Is it just circumstances or can we play an active role in being a strong personal brand? At Be Your Best Podcast, we chat with others who have faced challenges and have created successes with their personal brand for both work and fun. Today, we are happy and eager to be talking with Michael Garin, a former monk, a contractor, curator, writer, musician, and frequent tourist on roads less traveled. Michael has recently authored and published a new memoir titled Unleashed, which is about how he and his life partner, Katie, lost and found the beloved dog, Zizi, and their own personal connection. Michael's personal brand ethos is reflection, compassion, and self-recognition. Michael's brand promises insights, entertainment, honesty, and honoring the adage to do no harm. Michael's brand style, according to Michael, is casual, self-efficacy. Effacing. Effacing. Self-effacing. All right. So what's that mean, self-effacing? It's sort of self-deprecating. You so need, that's what I thought. Yeah. Yes. Self-deprecating and humorous. I've had the pleasure of knowing Michael as a peer, friend, and inspired author for over 30 years. So, Michael, welcome and thanks for correcting my pronunciation. Glad you could join us on Be Your Best. Gil, thanks a lot for having me. I really appreciate it. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Michael, let's start. Uh, by sharing, can you share with us how it all began for you? Well, uh, it can go way back in terms of, you know, how I came to be the person that I am. And I have to start with, uh, my parents, the two most influential people for anybody lucky to have two people bring them into the world. And I think I mentioned once before too, how my parents uh, met, which was unusual and brought together really by their common faith uh, in that my father traveled to Spain when he was a young man, he was deeply religious and he took the tour of the trail of Compostela. I should know this, but in Northern Spain, pilgrimages mm -hmm. take place and people walk this trail. It could take a week, it could take 30 days. And he went there to walk it. And my mother was a tour guide working and helping. And I guess they struck it off there a case of opposites attract, I'm sure, because she's very vivacious. My father is very taciturn. He was very taciturn, very shy, really. 
but he was also wily because when he had to leave and come back to America, he bought a lottery ticket. He gave it to her along with his address and says, let me know if I won. (laughs) So that was clever. So that started a three-year correspondence of 256 letters across the Atlantic in which they fell in love and professed their love for one another. And we have these letters and have read them and there's no underplaying this sort of sacramental way that they looked at this union, this prospective union. And the next time he saw her was three years later when he flew over alone and married her in a cathedral and brought her back to America and where she started a new life and uh, a lot of new things for her. And it must've been tough, but I think it was their common faith that made it all possible. And, and so that brought into the other thing that was very dominant in my siblings in my life was the religious influence in the house, you know, the Catholic upbringing, the school, grade school, high school, college, Jesuit college. And I think uh, for them, I think they thought that the instruction that we got, the religious instruction, would give the kind of guidance that we needed in many other areas of life, which were to come, which may I say was not the case for me. (laughs) But um, because I don't recall having ever a heart-to-heart conversation with my parents about existential issues like what are you going to do with your life what would you like to do what's life about it's sort of like this is what it's about and and uh so anyway it it was uh, that was a heavy duty influence there but it was a wonderful household but we were very well loved my father uh my i guess my connection to world literature and writing and words was from him because he was very careful with his diction he was a man of few words but still waters ran deep. And as an example, every, not every night, but it was an, not an uncommon thing at the dinner table. If someone, one of us used the word incorrectly or someone said, I, what does that word mean? I don't know. He would immediately get up from the table, go into the living room, come back with the Merriam-Webster dictionary, open it up, read the definition, read the word, go back, return it and come <laughs> back to eat dinner. Like, you couldn't wait till we had to digest that word before we digested the food. Like we had to know that word. That's funny that, you know, that's, uh, my dad did that too. Is that so? Uh, not like, like maybe so abruptly, but he would always be looking at the dictionary and then literally helping us with our vocabulary or our understanding of what words meant a lot. So maybe that was sort of what, they did back then. I don't know. Cause now with today, everything's so quickly and fast and, and social media organized that maybe that's, that's an, a lost art or something. Well, I know just speaking personally, I think I read less than I used to as a young person, <laughs> the number of books that I put away when I was young, cause he took us to the library every two weeks, mm. get out the maximum number of books and read them. And um, so it was, definitely there and he was a college professor so he had to speak in front of the class and um you know he was very well spoken Mm. although there are some words that were very hard for him to say (laughs) um but uh and also was very musical uh in our household um he played the trumpet in a band when back in the kind of the big band era and had a working gig but i think he considered it too hard of a livelihood to engage in 
for the rest of his life. So he got into academia. But um, in our household, he played the trumpet. He played piano, guitar. He played the recorder. For his fun, he bought a banjo. We had an accordion. We had a marimba. <laughs> and we had a set of Congo ropes. Wow. So and we all music- took piano lessons. Yeah. Sounds um, like a lot of great music was in your life. It was. And also I, I credit him with my love and introduction to classical music because he played it on the record player and I did some of the real chestnuts of, of the repertoire and I liked them. And then I returned, you know, in my youth at a certain point, something shifted and I bought fewer and fewer rock albums and more and more classical albums mm. and got into classical music. Um, so yeah, the, the music was there and, uh, and on my mother's side, she was also very creative, very artistic. Um, before she married my father and came to America, she had been offered to be the director of a sewing school in Madrid. And throughout our life there in America, she was always like the sound of the singer machine going and going. And mm. she was making my sister's dresses and uniforms. She did all that, you know, from patterns and templates. And she knew how to sew. But beyond that, she was a wonderful painter, as was her mother. My grandmother was self-taught and a wonderful artist and uh, painter. And my uncle, my mother's brother, made his livelihood his whole life as a fine artist. And his works are in museums in Spain. And my mother loved to paint as well. And uh, she ended up taking some classes with Nelson Shanks, who was a famous portrait painter who whose works are, you know, in the Capitol building in D.C. of some presidents and royalty in Buckingham Palace. And at St. Joe's University here in Philadelphia, there's a few portraits that my mother has done of former presidents. And um, she would always donate whatever commission it was that they got to some cause that she found worthy. Wow, that's beautiful. And I tell you, the, the example that my parents set, as far as when I say compassion, it's like we were witness to two people who live their faith in terms of doing unto others. Uh, Twice they put up Vietnamese refugee families for long periods of time in our house on the third floor that had its own shower and and they helped them get jobs and apartments. And then uh, one time they came home for a visit and there was a pregnant unwomen, I'm sorry, unwed young woman living there because her parents, uh, her family had rejected her and she needed a place to stay and they helped her out. And, you know, my mother would cook food and donate it to homeless shelters. My dad picketed the AMP for selling non-union grapes. So it was just, they were do-gooders. And uh, I could only hope that more of it rubbed off on me. I mean, but uh, it was an influence mm. that set some sort of, you know, awareness in me about sensitivity towards others. Mm. So I was lucky that way. Yeah. Really? So So what would you say, obviously your parents are big influencers, but I have to ask, I'm sort of curious, um, what would you say along with your parents, who were your biggest influencers in your life? Well, I think that starts coming at a a bit of a later age. And uh, as far as in, in literature, I had, you know, 
writers that I admired and who had an influence on me as uh, some of these writers did in the whole counterculture towards the end of the 60s and you know Herman Hesse, Aldous Huxley wrote The Doors of Perception, mm. there's the Castaneda books and most most impactful was probably Be Here Now by Ram Das because it was revolutionary it, it was like talking about expansion of consciousness and it, and the book itself its format if you've ever looked at it you you haven't there weren't too many books like that nor a lot, a lot of illustrations in there oh illustrations and spiraling this and that realizations it's a trip itself to read the book so and we my friends passed it around and that was very influential and um you know it seemed like the stage was being set in a certain way for something to come and there's perhaps a little story associated with that um that one time um maybe i'm getting off the topic because this isn't specifically about a a influencer but those writers influenced you know we were somewhat influenced by dabbling in some of the illegal drugs at the time and one time my friends and i were uh, visiting the audubon nature nature preserve outside of philadelphia um, it's a beautiful tract of land. I think they have a building which houses some of James Audubon's illustrations of the North American. It's right bound. along the, the Perkyoman Creek, isn't it? I think so, yeah. yeah. It's a gorgeous. So we went to visit at near the close, at the end of a day on a spring day. It was very atmospheric, very misty, foggy, beautiful day. And for some reason, I was trailing behind everyone. They're way ahead of me. And as I am trudging down this hill, a bird lands on my shoulder and I just try not to, I just, okay, wow. okay, I'm going walking down and it stayed there for a while and then it took off. And um, now that's never happened to me since nor before, but I was reminded how in certain native American indigenous cultures, the totem or the spirit bird is so it's like everyone has a totem animal that might show up at important times. Mm. I don't know if that was it. I can't say that. That wasn't a parrot. It didn't talk to me, you know, <laughs> but it took off. And it was just right after that, that also uh, the biggest, hugest influence in my life is I heard about the message of, you know, going within and, and um, that experience that I didn't know I was looking for. In, in retrospect, it's easy to see someone was searching, but in the midst of it, I don't know that I would have thought I was searching. I was just living my life but the avenues that you're going and you're trying is you're looking for something. And uh, so that's when I heard about, you know, Prem Rawat and uh, at the time, and it's sort of like, I was just struck gobsmacked, as they say, you know, just astounded because it changed everything in my life at that time, it ended some things it started other things and became the avenue that I wanted to pursue. <clears throat> What is that? What is, so? Uh, I guess he's a teacher, or and and what does he? I mean, what what did he help you with? Well, I think when it is that I first heard about him, um, it's the same thing that he was offering today. It was perhaps presented in a little more cosmic, uh, or uh, I don't know, different different way it was about having an inner experience so that this uh, the reality that people might write about have concepts about you didn't have to just rely on belief system or concept but that you could have an inner experience 
of something real that is within you. And I was like, really? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in that. I want that. And, uh, and uh, you know, there's a period of listening and hearing. And I don't know how people know or become certain that they want to pursue it, but it was all registered in a heartfelt place within me. And so, uh, yeah, taught not just that there was a door within you, that there was something behind the door, and that here's the key, by the way, to the door. Mm -hmm. And if you use it, you could open the door and you could proceed and, and, uh, and start feeling and experiencing things inside. And I was all for that. And to, this, to the point where I you know, decided to dedicate my life for that, that period of time um, and dropped everything else to do that. And so. So that was a long time ago. And yeah, and that's. Um, I think a lot of us, and I, I'm dating myself too, but I think in the uh, early 70s, there was a lot of movement of people looking for something different uh, because what was being taught to us, <laughs> we were going to war. I mean, it was, they were sending us to war or they were, you know, it was a, I mean, no question we're going through, I think, another seismic shift nowadays in culturally and world, uh, just because maybe it's the environment, maybe it's because we have another war going on, uh, well, for whatever reason. But I know at the time I was, uh, I, I was looking to, I was looking for an answer. I was looking for something better than the, uh, what was being taught to me or told to me. Uh, so I really, uh, I empathize with that. Now I, I got to ask you one more thing, uh, and since we're talking about this, um, so there's this sort of awakening you had, right? You had this awakening, you, you started, uh, I guess doing the program that Prem offered. Right. And are you still doing that today? Is, is that, is that, or is that something you just sort of did when you were like in the throes of change and disruption, or is it something that has stayed with you and you still uh, do the, I guess the meditation or is that, you know, that, they, oh, well, what is uh, that? Well, that, that period of time, which you have described as being a monk was spent in what was described as being an ashram and, as many, some of your listeners will know that word means shelter. And so, especially coming from India, I guess, people who dedicated their life lived in, the, it was really a retreat from the world. And I think even Prem back at that time, at one point he said, you know, this will, it will not always be like this, you know, this period of time in, in, that you're having. And, and it's true uh, that that time came and lasted for quite a long time, I guess, relatively speaking in my life. And then it ended and, you know, I wouldn't, <laughs> seek to live in that lifestyle again. Um, and so the amount of shelter and concentration that was afforded within that format is not what I experienced today in my life. It's, it's uh, you know, I'm not as um, devoted to, to the practice as I was then, but it's still in my life is like the bedrock, like undercurrent um, awareness and 
and it waits for me sometimes. I mean, it's always there, but uh, you know, I, there's a reason why they call this Maya and the world of illusion. We're distracted. And, and yet I can never really forget that, you know, this, this, there's more to this than the world of appearances. And, and sometimes you just, when you get thirsty, you just, you go inside and you practice. And uh, every time I do, I come out more fulfilled and say, you know, get on the stick here, buddy. And, you know, it's there as much as you want to open up and use it. So it's still present in my life, but not to the degree uh, that I, that it was earlier. Mm. So let's do a, a little fast forward now to your present day. Mm-hmm. Right. Yes. And uh, you just wrote a book or published a book, which I'm holding in my hand. It's called Unleashed. How a dog, a lost dog rescued a lost love. Um, and um, I just read this book and I loved it. It was really, really heartfelt. Um, so tell me about the, the story. Like, why did you take the time to write this? It's pretty much like a, like a little, it's a, an autobiography, an event in your life, it sounds like. Well, I think it could be under the category of memoir of a certain event that happened. And, mm. uh, and it came about, I had written other things. I had had a nonfiction book proposal that uh, was agented in the, prior to this about an entirely different subject, did not sell. I've written you know, a children's book. I've written, I've written an illustrated a humor book about food. Um, and I've written many short pieces, none of which ever went anywhere. Uh, mean, meaning they never left the house. They didn't get in the mail. They, didn't, they weren't sent to too many places, but I did it for my own you know, self-fulfillment. So when this event happened, um, it got a little publicity. And there was, when we found our dog that went missing after the journey, uh, it was the reunion of ZZ and I and me were filmed and went on YouTube and then was picked up by a TV show. And then the panelists said, when's the book coming out? And when I heard that, I knew I, this is the project that I can not just start, but I can finish. That's within my capacity to finish. And I'm going to do it, you know. And uh, Katie has said that she never saw me so motivated that, uh, you know, after a long day's work and I'm contracting, I come home and I sit there for a couple hours and until, you know, I had a first draft, I kept at it. And at first, the framework for the book was to maybe just be a reportage of what happened every day. And then over time, and over six rewrites over five years, it, it got leavened with um, humor, various spiritual asides and stories and references that came from my past. And not just that, but also dealt with our relationship because as the book describes in we lost something that we took for granted, which was our dog, right? You know, it was always there. And then all of a sudden, one day the pet sitter lost it. And we were just, you know, really out suffering. And we started looking. And then in the course of the intense focus of those 12 days, working together, we realized there was something else that we had been taking for granted and that we had lost too, which was our sort of like, uh, we're taking each other for granted and our relationship. And it was interesting to see how 
you know, all of everything went away except that intense focus and it put the lens on our relationship. And as a result, it did have us reconnect mm. uh, that whole search. So the project came about because the subject matter was there. The event was there. It wasn't fiction. I knew everything had happened. And then I did get an agent and, um, and it was become, became clear to me through the agent that you need a second storyline. And that became the relationship angle. And um, so that's why it says how a lost dog rescued a lost love. Mm, and it was sweet. a heartfelt story. And yeah, yeah, it was. I, uh, I, uh, I have to tell you too, it's a real page turner. Like I was on the edge of my seat. <laughs> well, it's to, funny. I got into it. And I read the whole weekend. I, got to, I, I was on the edge of my seat. Like, and, and so you have a way of doing that, by the way. You know, uh, it, it's it's good. I'm happy to hear that. Uh, there was one reader who uh, is a fan of the book, but he thought the fault line was that, well, you don't have any suspense. People kind of know what the outcome is going to be. And I, well, the fact that despite knowing the outcome, there's still, can't, you know, it's a page turner. It, that's not the fault of the book. It's, it's, um, it's like what the people want to read the whole book and find out at the end that he was hit, that Zizi was hit by a car and we never found her. And we don't know what happened to her, by the way. We just thought we'd tell right, you that right, this terrible right. thing happened. Yeah. You know, people love dogs. They love the story and they want a happy ending. And if I can give them that and that is the ending. That, and if the, along the way they get entranced by the storytelling, that's wonderful too, because I don't want to commit that sin of boring the reader. That is the cardinal sin. And so that interest has to be in every sentence, yeah. you know, and actually there is a version of this book that is 30,000 words longer than the one you read, Jill. <laughs> 30, well, I'm glad 30, I, got the, I got the abridged edition. <laughs> yeah. Highly recommend it. Right. So, and were those 30,000 words poorly written? No, but they turned out to be extraneous to the storytelling. So the narrative got streamlined, got more refined, things were cut. It's all in the rewrite. You know, mm, in yeah. so many, what happens is, and I'm sure many writers have this habit of, um, they write one night, then the next day or the next day they come back and they look at what they wrote the day before. Yeah. There is no way that you can't make it better. It can, right. it is always made better. And then that leads a segue into the creative to start the next batch of something new. But that rewriting is what makes all the difference. Well, I uh, took as a designer, it's the same. And then this, uh, the, the biggest thing for me is the doubt. Like, oh, you know, it's, I had to get away from the doubt that this is good enough or, you know, I'm right. my, my, almost that, that expression, my worst critic is me. And, right, of course. And, and, and then when you get that out of the way, and, and another thing I noticed too is you got to take a break, right? Mm -hmm. Just walk away from it for a day or something mm -hmm. or two days, whatever. Then you come back and... Uh, but I, 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 I'm not a writer, but I, I, I empathize. Let's just put it that way. I empathize with that, the, um, the intensity of, of producing something uh, creatively. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, it's funny. It's like my mother often was, can you ever, like, she felt like the paintings that she had done, she could always go back and maybe do a little something more and make it a little better. I mean, what is perfection right. anyway? Does it really exist? It's always the degrees of imperfection <laughs> to get less exactly. and less. <laughs> exactly. Um, um, exactly. It's good to have, my father was like that as an architect and as a painter, like you see the, uh, the artwork behind 
He's yes. a modernist, but same thing. He's always reiterating stuff or redoing it, things like that. Um, so I have, I have a, mm -hmm. speaking of art and creative, I know you have this art collection. Yeah. And I, I, wait, when you told me about it and how you, you know, you, you collected this information, you know, collected the art, uh, I'd love to hear you tell us a little bit about that. Well, it was a very organic process because uh, the majority of the contracting work that I do takes place in uh, the African-American community of West Philadelphia primarily. I've been doing it for many years. And I'm also, Katie and I both are inveterate like uh, flea marketers, thrift stores. You know, we love just the thrill of the hunt of looking for things, unusual things. Um, I'm not that good at it. I mean, I, we went to a flea market and a woman, I saw a print, I said, to the woman, how much do you want for that print? She said ten dollars, and my comeback was, "Would you take 12 And uh, you know, this, <laughs> this is not what they teach you in the Harvard Business School, you know. Right, right, but right. that was me, just for a story, and you know, I thought it was worth more. But um, I began to see in some of these little places underneath the L tracks, and go into a store, and there in the corner is a painting which struck me, and I uh, collecting dust, and I liked it, and I, I bought it, I brought it home. And, Katie liked it too. It had real aesthetic appeal. It seemed to be of someone from North Africa with a turban and the, the flowing robes, you know, when we said, yeah, we like this. And then shortly after, same thing, another store. And then Katie was very encouraging. You know, you should see when you see these things, you should get them. And they're, you know, they, what ended up happening is it's a very homegrown collection of uh, people uh, from the community, artists from the community, subject matter in the community. So it's art of and by African-Americans. And um, I just saw it sitting there and I hope that one day it will have a home, bricks and mortar home where people can see it on the website, uh, which is www.diartspora.com, D-I-A-R-T-S-P-O-R-A. -R well, good, thank you. Thank you for spelling it out. <laughs> it's sort of the art of the African diaspora that, uh, you know, people, there's some 200 works of art on that website and uh, different medium, pastels, oils, watercolors, carving, sculpture, paper mache. And you just see the variety of expressions by people who maybe did not have any training and nor a lot of resources or materials or paints to, and yet they still had the creative urge and they expressed it and I think taken together, it's a real interesting visual narrative of life in that community. Mm. And so, um, you know, it's mostly in storage at the moment, but I'm looking for a place for it to land where it, you know, can get some eyeballs. Yeah, create a show or uh, our gallery. We had a show. We had an exhibit of oh, just yes, of just thirty-five. Uh, pieces focusing on portraiture and it was held at the university city arts league near the university of pennsylvania had a great turnout katie did the social media quite a bit and people said they had never seen quite a re on the reception night the, the whole community came out there not the whole community but the place was full and there was a hunger for it it's almost like where's our place to see us on the walls you know mm -hmm. you go to the, the philadelphia art museum and if you want to see people of color you might find them in you know, modes of primitivism or something, you know, and it's mainly European, but where's our place? Where's, where's us on the walls? Mm. And so 
that that's there is an appetite for that yeah that's a great i love what you said uh that's us on the wall i mean that can almost uh be a theme like about that that whole genre and that the whole collection you're doing i think it's beautiful it's really cool well you know it's it is starting to happen there was this show at the philadelphia art museum called represent which i saw which was pretty amazing and i know that i think you saw one at, at pafa Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts did a show, did an exhibit. Uh, there was a documentary recently on HBO about the art collection at the University of Maryland by David Driscoll. And we went, uh, we saw it, we went down there. And um, so the appreciation for uh, African-American artists is growing. Um, there are big names in, the, of course, there are many big names. Uh, I don't have any of their art, okay? Yeah, uh, that's cool. But, very you know cool. the small names and yeah. some have no name but they speak for themselves the artwork wow that's beautiful so you're an a contractor an author and a collector and many other things so yes i i'm looking forward to dropping one of those three the, the contracting <laughs> contracting right uh because uh well it's it, it's time to put it in the rearview mirror Mm. Uh, in a way and uh and continue on with the writing and the curating and uh and seeing what's next uh, that's that's wonderful um well michael uh i want to thank you thank you uh so much for participating and being part of be your best listen i want to thank you gil for giving me this opportunity and the platforms to to speak about it uh i i I did forget, by the way, under influences and influencers, that Katie also was, you know, very supportive and encouraging always mm -hmm. for my creative efforts and had more faith in my writing talent than I did often. And and my I've only myself to blame for foot dragging in the writing department. She was always very encouraging, She's very accomplished and busy artist herself. Um, but you know, well, let's give. Um, I agree. Let's give Katie a big <laughs> recognition because she's a major player in your book as well uh, uh honestly and, if it wasn't for her uh resolve during the search for zizi i don't know that we would have found zizi yeah. because she was relentless and i was sort of following behind and it was believe me an effort from dawn to dusk 12 days straight camping out in people's backyards trying to find a dog that didn't want to be found that had turned feral because that's what happens sometimes to these dogs. They lose their domesticity in their fight for mm -hmm. survival. They won't even respond to your call, even though you were their beloved owner a few, several days before. Wow. Makes it, makes it harder. Yeah. We yeah. only found ZZ when she had expended so much of her resources and was so weak that she couldn't really run away much. So I have uh, one more question. It's very simple. Uh, and that is, if people want to reach out to you, Michael, what are the best ways to 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 connect with you and just to, to see your art or to read the book? I mean, what's the best way to reach out to you? Well, the book is available on uh, Amazon and Walmart, Barnes and Noble. I think some other places too, but those are three big ones. Um, you know, there's a, a Help Finds Easy page on Facebook. If you want to follow that, oh. you can look for that. Um, an email that they want if they want to say anything to me about the book or whatever how they uh, would be uh, my dog zz at gmail 
And ZZ is spelled Z-E-E-C-E-E. <laughs> has nothing to do with ZZ Top. Okay. Right. There's no copyright infringement, but that was the name that we came up with because we liked a dog that was called DB and that was already taken. So we said, how about ZZ? So my dog ZZ at Gmail. And um, at Goodreads, there's a site called Goodreads for readers and um, a lot of reviews are posted there. And I have an author profile page there. So if you go to Goodreads and put in my name in the uh, title of the book, Unleashed, including the subtitle, you can get information there too. That's great. So, and at Twitter, it's uh, my dog ZZ. Also, Twitter at my dog ZZ. There's a Twitter handle. Oh, nice. Well, Michael, thanks again for uh, joining us. And uh, I highly recommend the book. I'm telling you right now, I'm telling everybody, got to check the book out. It's wonderful. It's a great heart story. And it's, uh, it's called Unleashed by Michael Garren. You know, thank you so much, Gil. I do appreciate it. And less people think they just have to take your and my word for it. It did get a very nice Kirkus review, the publishing industry standard for appraising new releases by publishing houses. Mm -hmm. And they read it and it was just a very nice, positive, warm, inviting review of the book. So you don't have to take my word for it or yours. I needed that independent, objective appraisal. Absolutely. And I got it and, it and it worked out in my favor and I'm grateful for that. Oh, great. Thanks, Michael. Okay. Thank you, Gil.